Hi, this is Seth Mosley, and you're listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. I'm coming to you from Pensacola, Florida this week with our fourth episode of Ask Me Anything. These are some of my favorite episodes to do because it's where we get to hear from you. I get to answer your questions as best I can. And I just want to say a big, big thank you for helping us hit our first really, really significant milestone as a podcast. The Full Circle Music Show for the month of March hit our first month with 10,000 unique downloads. Now, to some of you that may seem like a ton, to some of you that may not seem like that much at all, but for us it was a really big and it was a really important milestone in the growth of our podcast. It's important to us because it's an upward momentum line in the right direction. And it's been very, very encouraging to know that what we're doing and the content that we're bringing is adding value to people and helping people like you just navigate this ever crazy changing world that is the music business. I'm sure you know this by now, but your decision to jump into the music business, just like mine, is a little bit of a crazy one because music is one of those industries where you you have to get into because you love it. You don't get into it because of money or because of other motivation, and chances are you probably won't see that for a long time, especially if you're starting out. It's not to say you can't make money in music because you definitely can, and the most successful people have found a way to do it. It's the people who are always creating songs and music and stories that are so compelling that people can't help but go see them live and listen to the music over and over again and stream it and look them up on YouTube and participate in their fan clubs. There are still people making money in music, but the music business is not for the faint of heart. It's not one of those things that you just jump into and wake up one day and say, oh, I think I'm going to make a career in the music business. It's one of those things where you really cannot have a plan B. We talked about that in one of our early episodes with Tim Lauer, and this was a great piece of advice that he gave, was that if you have a plan B from music, chances are you're going to fall back on that. This business is for those who have no plan B. And I can honestly say that was my story. When I graduated from high school, I didn't know anything else that I wanted to do. It was literally the only thing that I felt like I was good at and the only thing I was really that passionate about. Got good grades in school somehow, but I I was really only passionate about making music. So for me, it was my plan A, it was my plan B, it was my plan C and D and E and, and, and on down the line. And then once you've mastered music, then you can kind of start thinking about other things, but it requires intense, passionate, dedicated focus for a long, long time. And the reason why people do that is not because they they love the pain of it and, and love dealing with rejection because you really, let's face it, you have to have thick skin if you're going to be in the music industry because there's going to be a lot of rejection for every song that you have cut, for every hit that gets spun on the radio, for every show that gets packed out and tickets are all sold out and lines out the door. You're going to have three or four of those that are not that. You're going to have to take a lot of rejection on your way to success. And even after you deal with success and and you've quote unquote made it, you still deal with a healthy amount of rejection. And that really is just a function of identity. It's knowing who you are apart from what you do. And that's really hard for us as creatives because we pour so much into our art, into our songwriting, into our creativity, and we should. We have to because people want the real thing. They want 
honesty and authenticity, and they want us to be genuine. They want us to know that we mean it when we're singing it or that we're writing it. So it's really hard, but it's always a balancing act of knowing that, you know what, just because somebody doesn't like my song doesn't mean that I am a lesser than person. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It just means that it wasn't for them at that time. And here's the other reality is that even if they don't like it one day, they could wake up the next day and completely flip it a 180. I've had that so many times on projects, even even myself. I've I've been at the beginning of records and been uh, cutting songs that I just don't understand. And then by the end of the record, we've done it. And I'm like, holy cow, this is my favorite thing ever. And that's just the reality that we have to deal with is just knowing that, you know what, if we're batting a thousand, we're probably playing in the little leagues. If you're batting 300, which means, you know, for every one hit that you get, you're striking out two times and you're doing pretty good. You're in the, the hall of fame. So that's why I love these Ask Me Anything episodes because it's just really real tangible ways for us to just encourage each other along this crazy journey that is the music business. So before we jump in, I just wanted to share a quick announcement with you. So maybe you've heard of our Music Makers Bootcamp. We've received rave reviews already and you might have been able to attend one of ours. We do them from time to time, a couple times a year in Franklin, Tennessee good news is we have a waiting list up at fullcirclegoeslive.com because you'll be at the very front of the list and have priority access to tickets for the very next time that we announce one, which will be coming up very soon. So head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com. These events have been described as life-changing, as very helpful, as very tangible. We try to get the best industry experts together under one roof to come and share their insights and knowledge about the music business so it doesn't have to be some big secret, some big mystery. So that's the Music Makers Boot Camp, a condensed weekend of intense learning and education and networking. So check that out. It's at fullcirclegoeslive.com. Get on the waiting list and don't miss your opportunity to get to the next one. Yeah, make sure you head over to fullcirclegoeslive.com. Get on that wait list. You're not going to want to miss these events, they've definitely been life-changing, not only for the people coming, but for us as a team, as Full Circle Music. And before we jump over to our first question on Ask Me Anything, I just wanted to ask if you would do us a favor, head over to iTunes and click the subscribe button. If you're not already subscribed, subscribe to our podcast so that every time we post a new episode, it'll come right to your email. You'll know when the next interview is going to be and you don't miss anything. So if you would head over and subscribe, and if you haven't already done so, leave us a good rating, good five-star rating, and a nice review on iTunes, and that'll help us keep growing this show, keep getting the word out there. It's important to us, and it means a lot. So thank you for doing that. So we're going to head over to our first question on Ask Me Anything. Hi, Seth. This is Micah calling in with my question for the Full Circle Music Show. My question is, what are the qualities you're looking for when hiring somebody in the music business? And how does somebody essentially break into the music business? Thanks. Well, that's a great question from Micah, and I'm glad you asked it because we're talking about the qualities of what makes somebody successful in the music business. And what do I look for specifically when we're hiring? Well, I really start with, do they have a track record in it? If not, 
what's there? What's the story? Are they driven? Are they passionate about music? Do they have a plan B? It's like we talked about earlier. If, if somebody's got a plan B and they're sort of just dipping their toe in the water, I'm probably not super inclined to hire them. I think flexibility is another thing. And having really more than one skill, being good at more than just one thing. You'll hear me talk a lot on this show, and we talk a lot about it in our company about focus and find your niche, find what you're good at, and become a master at it. But the reality is, is how it looks like in everyday life. Uh, there's days that I'm producing records and writing songs and doing social media and doing interviews and just really wearing a lot of different hats and talking to labels. So I think it's important to have more than one skill set and just to be well-rounded. If you're breaking in trying to be an engineer, uh, we, we see this a lot in Full Circle Academy, that there's a lot of people move to Nashville for audio engineering and they'll go get a degree in it. And to be honest, the demand for people who are strictly engineers is so much lower nowadays than it was even five or 10 years ago. The, the, the producers are by nature of the job and, and, and just how technology is nowadays. The producers are, are having to engineer their own stuff. Uh, budgets have gotten smaller, so people don't often just have a staff engineer around or even a part-time engineer around. So if you're an engineer, figure out, you know, be, be the best engineer, but also be good at other stuff. Figure out, you know, what else can you come in and add value doing? Can you uh, be a guitar tech? Can you help with social media? Can you learn photography? Can you learn some basic video editing skills? Just learn something else that that allows you to be a, an, an irreplaceable asset to somebody's team. And really, when at the end of the day, that's what I look for when I'm hiring somebody, is I'm looking for somebody who is absolutely irreplaceable. And that's not just a quality that you're born with. That's something that you earn. You make yourself irreplaceable. See, I want to be, as a producer, as a songwriter, I want to be irreplaceable to the people that that have me a part of their records. So they have to have me back on their next project. Otherwise, they don't feel like it'll work or they'll have fun doing it. I want to be irreplaceable. And I want the people on my team to make themselves irreplaceable as well too. And I can't do that for any one of my team members. They honestly just have to have the self-initiative, the self-motivation to do that themselves. And I think that's the last part of it is um, looking for people that really are self-starters and don't need to be micromanaged. I think with any company, we're looking to hire people who are already motivated. See, we don't have the time of day or the energy or the resources or even the capability to motivate people. It's just not possible. We want people who are already so motivated because they're so passionate about the power of music that they can't imagine doing anything else. So having people that are self-starters and motivated to show up every day, and if you finish with whatever task you're on, go, go on to the next thing. Go find something else that you can make yourself valuable on. And to continue on this point and address the last part of your question about how do you break in, how does one break into the music business? Well, one of the most important things is to not go in being focused on the money. If you start being focused on the money, and if your first questions when you come into a job interview with me or really any other company in our world as well, how much does it pay? How much vacation time do you get? What are the benefits? 
if that even comes up in our first conversation, I know you're probably not the right fit for our company. And hear me say that I do believe in taking care of our people very well and as best we can. But if that is the primary motivation and the first thing on your mind, then you're probably not ultimately going to be long-term successful. See, I think the people who just show up because they love doing it, whether they get paid or not, those are the ones who are going to stick around. And I had a, a little bit of a controversial Facebook post on my page uh, about a month back where I said, you want to know one really easy way to break into the music business? Start by adding massive value for free for as long as it takes. And my page got lit up by a guy that I think honestly just kind of misunderstood my point of the question saying that, you know what, if this was any other industry, you don't have to do that. You start out, if you go to college and get a degree to be an engineer, you start out making six figures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I want to make the argument that it really, you are kind of paying for it one way or the other. Music, I don't necessarily advise people go get a traditional four-year college degree. If you're going to be a petroleum engineer in Oklahoma, then sure, I want you to have a college degree. If you're going to be my dentist, I want you to have a college degree. But for music, save the money, save the time, and spend the time that you would otherwise on building relationships, building your skill set, and building your trust within the music business. I think internships are a very powerful and often overlooked way to break in. Just start by, you know, even if you're not in college, if you live in a city like Nashville or New York or LA, or if you commute back and forth to one of those, just start by writing somebody who's in the position that you want to be in. Maybe you want to become a music producer. We'll start by just making a list of all the music producers that you look up to and that you want to be where they're at and just figure out a way to contact them. That sounds a little bit crazy and scary and daunting and like, are they going to think I'm weird? Honestly, the answer is no. There's a pretty big chance that you know your message might get lost in the email inbox, but if you email 15 producers, chances are probably one of them is going to write you back. And if they write you back, just say, you know what, is there anything that you need help with right now? Can I literally just come and do your social media for you? Or can I come and edit drums? Or can I come and go get coffee for you, whatever it is. Just offer to add some kind of value and just always be looking to give, 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 give. And if they have any sense and if they have any availability for a position, you're going to be the first person that they're going to pull the trigger and hire because you've already paid the dues, built the trust, and shown that you're a team player, that you're a giver and not a taker. And to the guy's comment on my page about, well, every other industry, you know, you get paid right out of college. You sure do, but you're also paying off, you know, eighty or a hundred thousand dollars worth of student loans too. So you're not exactly just getting a free ride either. All right. So next question. Hey Seth, this is Brian from St. Petersburg, Florida. I was just going to ask, uh, what is your three favorite plugins that you use or that you think are essential on a mix? That is a very tangible question. I love that. Three plugins that I think are essential on a mix. Well, number one, I think you've got to have your output bus sounding uh, competitively loud with everything else that's out there on the radio because you're not just competing for cuts and for radio hits and songs on records 
with people who are just doing demos, you're competing with masters all day long. So what that means is you've got to have your stuff sounding every bit as good, every bit as aggressive and hard hitting. You've got to have it sound in your face. So I am a huge fan of Isotope Ozone 6. We use that a ton in our mixes. We're always using that on the tail end of our mixes because it just really helps to get a nice loud level. It helps to balance things out with equalization. So that's number one. Number two is Trigger from Stephen Slate plugins. And the reason why I love that so much is not necessarily because I'm always going for a super processed sampled drum sound, but sometimes the drum sounds we have are great and we literally just need a little supplementation all the way up to completely replacing. Trigger is the go-to plugin for that. So we use it day in and day out. What I really love about Trigger, as opposed to some of the other ones I used to use, is the ease of blending different kinds of samples together. Because let's face it, we've all got a lot of the same sample packs and we've all got a lot of the same plugins, we've got a lot of the same even source material, but what really can define us as producers and as mixers really trying to find our signature sound is what we do with those and how we blend them. And one way we like to do it is, you know, put a bunch of drum samples together to make a sound that we really like. The key with that is you've got to make sure that everything's in phase. You've got to make sure that they're not stepping on each other sonically. But Trigger is a great plugin to use, and I use that on pretty much every mix. And the third plugin that nowadays I don't think I could live without is Valhalla Vintage Verb. And it might sound a little cliche to have a reverb in my top three plugins, but literally that thing, you can kind of put it on anything, and it just makes it sound awesome and emotive and inspiring. You can put it on a pad sound, you can put it on a vocal, you can put it on drums, you can throw it on your guitars. And it's probably illegal how much I use Valhalla Vintage Verb on mixes. So those are my three plugins. I love that question. Hey Seth, this is Taylor Leatherwood. And my question is, um, what are your critical thoughts on the future of the Christian music industry? And how can it better serve the future consumers of Christian music? Uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, both from an artistic perspective and also a business perspective. Thanks. I think my thoughts on the Christian music industry in general are kind of the same as any genre as a whole. I think people are less consuming music based off of the fact that they're a fan of a certain genre. And what I mean by that is, as a music company... I want to look like what somebody's iPhone looks like. They've got Hillsong, and they've got Chance the Rapper, and they've got Katy Perry, they've got Lady Annabellum, and then they've got the latest EDM single that came out. People aren't listening so much for genre. They're listening more based off of what moods they're in and what stuff is really resonating with them and what's moving them. I think genre has been a byproduct of radio formats. And radio still has a very important place, and there's a lot of people still listening to radio. But I do see even some of the biggest stations in our world, in the Christian music world, K-Love, for instance, they have a very influential Spotify playlist. And it's not to say that Spotify is better than radio. It's not to say radio is better than Spotify. It's, it's apples and oranges. 
But the thing that I do realize is that great lyrics and great messages will always last. It doesn't matter what the technological medium is. Great messages are always needed. I'm a big believer that music is a basic human need because it's a universal language for communicating truth in ways that cannot be communicated simply with spoken or written words. Music will always have intrinsic value, will always have power, and it doesn't matter what platform it's being heard on, humans will always need it, they'll always want it, they'll always consume it, and they're probably going to consume it even more with just how easy it is now. So I think a word of encouragement to the Christian music industry would be not to be afraid to try different things that haven't typically been in the box. I think musically, our listeners are wanting us and they're ready for us to take risks. They're ready for us to start writing some lyrics that are a little more raw, open, honest. I think it even goes back to that whole Bono and Eugene Peterson interview where he was saying that you know a lot of Christian music he feels like is not honest. And granted, that's one person's opinion. Most people that I know in the Christian music industry are not setting out to write dishonest music. They're doing it because they're passionate about it and it's really that they're writing from a real place. It's just that our audience is ready for us to start taking some lyrical risks, to say things in a way that they haven't been said before, and to hear things in a way they've never been heard before. I'm excited to see the top 20 radio chart in Christian music right now because there's a lot of diversity. Radio programmers are playing some really, really good stuff. The messages are real and they're needed. And the music is fresh and it's different and it's, it's current. So I am, for one, really optimistic about the future of Christian music. I grew up listening to it. Many of you out there have heard my story and know that I am actively involved in writing and producing Christian music in addition to country music as well. And a good definition really for Christian music is not so much that Christian music has a sound or a set of chords or a thing, but really the DNA of Christian music is just the lyric. Christian and country are really the two defining genres where lyric is the differentiating factor there. So I think for believers in the Christian faith, The music and and the words are always going to be vital and important and necessary. I think we as creators and as marketers and as labels and managers really just need to be on the cutting edge. We need to be on the bleeding edge, even, even more so than what a lot of other music in our culture is. I think we should be looking to what are the things that are inspiring us, what are the sounds and emotions that are real to us, and just writing and creating music from that place. And the last thing I'm going to say on that subject is that I do believe 2017, at the time of recording this, March 30th, 2017, I think we have the best group of people working in the Christian music industry that I've ever seen. I've been in Nashville for close to 10 years now, and everybody that I know on the label side, on management and publicity, the downturn of the music industry has actually been a good thing because I think it's weeded out a lot of people who really maybe weren't meant to be there in the first place. The people who are doing it really want to be doing it. They're passionate about doing it and they're called to be doing it. 
So I'm encouraged just by a lot of my friends who are in the industry, knowing them, they're the real deal, and they're out legitimately just trying to make the best music and the most world-impacting music that we possibly can. So I am very optimistic just based on the people that I know who are working in the Christian music industry. And talking about the industry, it's always ever trying to figure out how to best monetize music. Is it a marketing tool? Is it the actual asset? How best to make money off of it? And here's a great question about that. Hi, this is Mickey Marion. My question is, in today's world, what does a record label count on as a primary source of income? Is it album sales, including downloads and streaming, uh, or publishing performance royalties, including radio and CCLI, or is it live events and touring and other 360 deal type income? Now, I can't speak to what each label's breakdown is, but I know from talking to a few friends of mine in Christian and country music, just speaking on the music side, the recorded music portion of it, it breaks down to about a third, a third, a third. One third being from still physical product, physical CDs being sold. And to some of you out there who are listening to this, that may sound crazy that people still buy music and listen to it on CD players. To those of you who are maybe in the older listening generation, it may sound crazy that people only listen on Spotify and don't own it anymore. But one third comes from physical Another third comes from digital sales, being you know iTunes and Amazon Music and any place people actually purchase digital copies of records. And then the last third being from streaming. See, that one for me was a big surprise when I heard that because I thought it was you know further in the future, maybe five or ten years down the road, the pendulum would tip, and then enough uh, money would be coming in from Spotify and Apple Music to sustain the industry, but no, we're already there. They're already making, you know, some artists are making 50% of their revenue on the recorded music side just from streaming, and some even more than that. Now, in regards to your question on live events, I think that really is the future of music. It's, It's artists are making their money on the road, a lot of labels now have that built into their deals where they, they call them 360 deals. So it's where they're participating in all types of revenue as a reward for taking the risk and investing in an artist's career and investing in helping them create their music. There's a lot of discussion around that. I won't go too far into it because we could do an entire episode just on 360 deals. But live events are really the financial driver for an artist's career. So some labels that do the 360 model, live events are a big part of that. Merchandising and sponsorships are a big part of that. And by and large, the modern record label is more so just starting to look like an entertainment company or a music company. Maybe they own their own tours or they have their own brand sponsorships. There are companies like Fancy, that's fan.si, that exist solely to monetize and help artists stabilize their cash flow. And that is solely through ancillary revenue. And, that, and those all sound like kind of big scientific words. And all that means is they help artists make money off of things other than just the music. And that's a big, big market out there. Some examples of that are VIP meet and greets for shows, ongoing monthly 
fan bases, which are kind of a subscription model where you pay to have as a fan direct access to the artist, special seating and priority access for concerts, and anything else that would fall outside of the umbrella of just the music. So anybody who's involved in music on the label side is smart enough to know nowadays that really the music is essentially just a marketing tool for the artist and for the brand. Now, obviously, somebody's got to get paid for it. They've got to pay to create this. Production is not free. Marketing is not free. Radio promotion is not free. Publicity is not free. There's all there's all these major costs, and a label is going to shell out you know, upwards of half a million dollars to break an artist in country or, or pop. They're going to spend well over a million dollars breaking an artist. So they're just looking for all these different ways that they can see a return on their investment and recoup their investment. But for the indie artists out there who are not as much even thinking you might need a label and you feel like you have the resources and the team and the infrastructure in-house to do what you need to do, there are a lot of ways to make money. If you own your own masters, you do make money on streaming. You want to try to get on the right playlists. You want to try and get your music in front of the right influencers. And you want your songs to go viral on Spotify, on Apple Music, and on those streaming sites. So I'd say as a word of encouragement, definitely make streaming a big part of your strategy because it's where everything's, it's not, it's not where it's headed. It's where we're at. Streaming really is the thing. And we're going to get to one more question, wrapping up episode four of Ask Me Anything on the Full Circle Music Show. Hey, Seth, Troy Stavros, thanks for taking my question. Uh, my question is, with the advent of Full Circle Records and your recent success with Matt Hammett's uh, single, Tears, I'd love to hear the timeline and specific steps it took to get from song creation to release on radio and streaming, uh, really just the nuts and bolts of the process. Thanks, and appreciate you as always. Bye-bye. The nuts and bolts of song creation to release, sale, radio, all of that stuff. Well, it's a long, long process, and for some songs, it happens a lot quicker than others. But since you specifically asked about my experience on FCM Records, which is our newest venture, it's our own in-house record label. So a lot of you guys listening out there, maybe that's news to you, but as of the past year... I started a record label to really just be an extension of what we're already doing, helping develop artists, helping find talent, and helping them discover or write the songs that are going to get them heard and put them on the map. Because really when it comes down to it, it all just starts with a great song. I really am a believer in that. I don't think there's a lot of magic or secrets to that. I think it's just having a song that resonates with the most people possible. So on the very front end, we signed an artist, Matt Hammett. We've talked about him a lot here on the show. We've interviewed him on the show. He's a great songwriter and he's a great artist. But in the very beginning stages, what it looked like with him was, I think we had probably 15 or 20 demos before we decided to pull the trigger on uh, going ahead and cutting this single and releasing this single. And that wasn't because... 14 out of the 15 of them were bad songs. It was just, Matt is such a prolific writer. And I do think it's important in any artist's journey to write a ton, especially on the front end as you're trying to develop and discover your sound. Because in the very beginning, I thought we had the singles already. And then he just kept writing and writing. And then all of a sudden, one day, he turns in this song that he wrote with another writer named Jeff Pardo, and it was called Tears. 
and it just stopped me in my tracks. I was like, this has to be it. I, I hope other people hear what I'm hearing on this. And so from that day, we went ahead and cut it. It was probably realistically about a month worth of production going back and forth on mix and master. And then we got to sit down with our radio promoter, Chris Hauser, play him that song. And we played him a few other songs we were working on. And sure enough, just like we thought, he said, that's the song that people need to hear. I'd love to start working that. I'd love to promote it. And then probably about two or three months later, we had a radio ad date. And we also made sure that the song was available on iTunes, on Spotify, and on all other sources, as well as having a, a really nice lyric video out when the single went out on radio. So for that process, it happened relatively quickly. And that's one of the benefits of being a small label and being able to have a small roster at this point. We just have two artists on our roster, so we can really serve them really well. But I've heard stories of songs taking you know, three to four years to really wrangle in and to land on the final version of the lyrics or the final version of the production. And then they take another year to chart. I had another single that was on the country chart last, last year. It was a top 20 single, and it stayed up on the charts for about 55 weeks. So as you can tell, a lot of the radio formats are pretty slow moving. That can be a good thing because it means you've just got a lot of people knowing your song. But for artists who like to keep putting stuff out there and to stay on people's radars, that can be kind of a frustrating process. But I'm definitely more of a fan of consistency, releasing more content, smaller amounts of content more often because people just have a harder time digesting a full album's worth of stuff. So I think you're going to see a lot more outside-the-box strategies from us in the next coming years, and I think you're already seeing them from a lot of other labels out there. But really to break it down, I mean, the steps are songwriting, then production, then the label comes up with a plan. The label writes that plan down. They put dates on the calendar. They execute the plan. They gain traction, and they keep working it until it's time to work on the next thing. So that's really kind of the nuts and bolts of the process. It really is that simple. It's a great question, Troy. Thanks for calling in. I met Troy and his daughter actually at one of our last Music Makers boot camps, and I was blown away. Some of the stuff that they were doing, they're definitely going to be a name you're going to want to watch out for. And I saw them from the time they came in the boot camp to the time they went out. I just saw them learning so much and connecting with people. I've seen them come back to Nashville and stay in relationship with people they met at our boot camp. And that's what we love to see. We love to create opportunities and environments where people can really win. So Troy, thanks for being a listener and thank you for the question. This has been Seth Mosley and you've been listening to the Full Circle Music Show. The show's produced by Full Circle Music Company. Head over to iTunes. Make sure you subscribe to the Full Circle Music Show and leave us a good rating and review. And make sure you're on the wait list for our next Music Makers Boot Camp. It's at fullcirclegoeslive.com. And we will see you next week.